Welcome to The Eater Upsell, a podcast from the Vox Media Podcast Network. My name is Daniel Janine. My co-host, our editor-in-chief, Amanda Clute, is off today. She's at the Vox Media Annual Summit, where Vox's super elites gather at the top of Mount Olympus to talk about the company. Today on The Upsell, we're looking at the history of modern fine dining. I was watching this movie recently called Ants on a Shrimp. It follows... Rene Redzepi and the Noma team as they popped up in Tokyo a couple years ago. What they do when they pop up is they base their menu, at least loosely, on the style of food that they are surrounded by. And so in this case, they're basing their menu on the traditional style of Japanese kaiseki. And there was a moment I had where I was watching it, and I didn't really put it together at the time, where I thought, oh my god, this food, this menu that they're making is almost exactly the same as the menu they serve out of their Copenhagen restaurant. And then our senior editor, Megan McCarran, wrote this piece called The Japanese Origins of Modern Fine Dining. And it blew the lid off the whole thing for me. The argument is that what we see as fine dining today actually has more of its roots in Japanese food than maybe even French. And it totally reshaped the way that I see fine dining. So I wanted to talk to Megan a little bit more about the piece. But first, I think it's important to define the term fine dining, which is notoriously difficult to define. But for the purposes of moving this episode along, I'm going to take a stab at it. Okay, here we go. Fine dining is a meal that is moderately expensive. Obviously, that is a relative statement. It has a culinary goal and point of view that goes beyond just satisfying hunger. There is attention paid to the look of the food, and there are multiple courses of varying size, and they are often in an order determined by the chef. How did Japanese cuisine influence fine dining? Sometime in the mid-60s, a number of French chefs, very prominent younger French chefs, started to visit Japan. This is Megan McCarran, Eater's senior editor. And some of that was apparently due to the 1964 Olympics. And there was a very prominent French chef who did those Olympics and started sort of bringing people. The Olympics were in Tokyo. So another big piece is a man named Shizuo Suji. He founded a cooking school in Japan in addition to starting having one of those really interesting lives where he was a journalist and a writer. And he was a huge... He was Japanese. He's obviously. Japanese, yes. So he founded a big cooking school in Japan, and he was a huge Francophile. Loved France. And France and Japan had been kind of having a culinary conversation since the 19th century when Japan opened up to the you know more influence and imports from Europeans especially. And so what Suji did is he started inviting French chefs to come to his cooking school, most notably a man named Paul Bocuse, who's the mm-hmm. very, very, very famous French chef. And it was hard to find data on who else definitely went, but generally it was sort of referenced that a bunch of these guys were going over there. And sometimes sources would say they were doing demonstrations. Sometimes sources said he brought them to learn about Japanese food, but I think it was probably a combination of both. What year was that? What year was the... So we know that Bocuse went after he got his third Michelin star, and that would be in 1965. Cool. A lot of my information about this came from... The introduction to Suji's book in English, which was published in 1980, it's called Japanese Cuisine, A Simple Art. 
the book sort of is an influence on like a whole generation, especially of American chefs. And Ruth Reichel also wrote a foreword where she just sort of casually mentions how all these French chefs went to Japan and had their mind blown. What changed? What did his food look like beforehand, and what did he bring back with him? So I'm not sure if this is definitely a change in his style that happened after he came back from Japan or not. But one of the sort of visual indication of how much French cuisine was changing at that time, and certainly in a direction that is more like Japan. To this day, there's two dishes on the menu of Pablo Cruz's restaurant. One that's still open. That's still open. Mm-hmm. One of them is um, a dish that's supposed to be in the style of Bocuse's French mentor for Nimpoint, who's another very famous French chef. And that dish is a very technically demanding but very simple dish. It's just a fillet of white fish. On the photos, you know that you can kind of see it's just like a sort of simple yellow or white cream sauce, and it's on a white plate. And then Bocuse's most famous dish, which is also still on the menu of his restaurant, is another fillet of fish, a fillet of red mullet. But instead of just sort of covering it in sauce and leaving it plain on a plate, what he does is he puts very, very thinly sliced small circles of potato on it so that they look like scales, which would probably require a Japanese mandolin. Right, right, right. And there's also sort of, at, at least at this point in the restaurant, there's a swoop of you know dark sauce to give it kind of like a visual counterpoint. There's a lot more just going on visually in the dish. And also, it's sort of a joke, right? It's like, mm-hmm. you know, here's fish and potatoes, but these potatoes are also the fish's scales. It's just kind of delightful and also reminds you where the fish came from. It's sort of narrative. If he had that idea before he went to Japan, certainly that is part of what he would have seen in Japan that would have resonated with him. And it's very close to, you know, what you see across Japanese cuisine. What did Japan have to teach at that time? What were people learning there? Simply put, they learned about something called kaiseki. And what is that? Not super easily translated into English, but uh, kaiseki is sort of considered the most formal way of dining in Japan. So I think when we think about Going to Japan and spending, you know, having a very fancy meal. A lot of Americans still think of, you know, $300 sushi, right? Mm-hmm. But there is another tradition. Um, it's called kaiseki. And it has a long sort of cultural history. It started out as a very simple tea ceremony directly associated with Zen Buddhism. Priests would, you know, sort of spend hours making tea and you'd have these little snacks to sort of let your body, like, drink that much tea, basically. Very simple vegan snacks. And then later on, it sort of became like a celebratory meal associated with samurai. Probably around like the sort of post-war economic boom in Japan, it really became like a codified type of fine dining. And it's defined by a lot of things that might sound very familiar to modern fanciers of all sorts of fine dining. It's defined by many small courses and they sort of progress you know in a very ritualistic kind of way like there's a there's a certain progression to kaiseki courses it's hyper seasonal a lot of the chefs who do this kind of dining are serving ingredients that are in season just that week or they go out and forage um, and then that's sort of what they're serving that week or the next week for their kaiseki uh, it's extremely visual and visually intricate. Intricate. It's just absolutely stunning. It's very colorful. 
because it's about the season. So, you know, in the fall, you'll see a lot of, you know, red leaves. In the spring, you'd see a lot of cherry blossoms. Um, there's a lot of green. Some of courses are completely, you know, that are more raw. And there's not a big emphasis on like sauces or heaviness or anything like that. And often it's also served with its own distinctive Japanese pottery um, mm. or spe- special dishes. You'll sort of see, in addition to having a beautiful dish, there'll be beautiful dishware. Wow. And that sounds a lot like modern fine dining. Yes, it does, doesn't it? (laughs) We'll be right back. Are you in need of great talent for your business but short on time? You don't have to get lost in a huge stack of resumes to find your perfect hire. You just need the right tools, smarter tools. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then, ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work actively notifying quality candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all shapes and sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs to ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash eat, E-A-T. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. One more time, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. So after French chefs went to Japan and had their collective minds blown and they came back and started cooking, what happened? What happened was something called Nouvelle Cuisine, which is sort of a late 60s and then early 70s movement in French fine dining. That's really sort of like the modernist revolution in art, you know, in the 1920s. They basically were really excited to throw out all the old rules and bring in some entirely new ones. France also had a pretty major protest in 1968 that at one point, like, really, you know, seemed like it could actually overthrow the current government. It was like a really big cultural moment. And in general, you know, France in the late 60s was like a lot of the world in the in the late 60s, big youth revolution happening. So certainly they were primed for that just within their own culture. Hmm. You know, suddenly everyone is serving lobster with melon and like putting squiggles of kiwi on things and, you know, obsessed with raw fish, obsessed with um, minimal cooking times, obsessed with vegetables. And yeah, so suddenly like no one wanted to cook that sort of traditional heavy. No one wanted to work with mother sauces anymore. That was all sort of considered on the outs. And obviously I'm exaggerating here a lot, but I'm, that's sort of the idea. So who came up with the term Nouvelle Cuisine? I don't remember off the top of my head who coined it, but certainly the three people who got the word out. I mean, you know, the chefs were definitely involved in this. Paul Bocuse is like definitely a proto-celebrity chef. Everyone was young. They were French. They were cocky. They were excited to be remaking <laughs> the world. You know, it's a very familiar story. But there were these three French writers, André Gaillot, Christian Milot, and Henri Gaulle. And they even started a new guide called the Gaumilot, which is still around in France because they thought Michelin was too stuffy. Mm-hmm. They were sort of like, this is the new wave. They wrote the whole manifesto of Nouvelle Cuisine. They're the ones who really linked it to this late 60s revolutionary energy in France. The critics who labeled Nouvelle Cuisine, did they 
give Japan credit? Not in their writing that is currently available. I don't know if they went to Japan.、Mm-hmm. They saw it as, I think, because of these sort of intergenerational tensions. They saw it as French innovation. Yeah, they saw it as like the French youth, the next generation of this great cuisine. It's more fun to say that, wow, look at the youth in France. They're having this big moment. They're redefining this whole culinary world rather than just saying, oh, they went to Japan and stole all their tricks. In a very polite kind of way, in the introduction to his 1980 book, Suji was like, you know, I think the exact quote is something like, while they won't admit it, I know these chefs, these Nouvelle Cuisine chefs, have been to Japan and seen what we do. And I think I see some of what Japan does in their Nouvelle Cuisine. So, you know, I think that, that to me struck me as a very polite way of kind of saying, like, hey, where's the credit? You know? <laughs> yeah. How do you want people's perception of contemporary fine dining to change? I think I don't want people to think of it as a European art,、mm-hmm. both in terms of there's people doing great work across the world right now in that tradition. We talk about restaurants in Lima, restaurants in Singapore, and then obviously restaurants in Japan. But a reframing of the idea that just as France was a big influence, as America and California were a big influence. Like, Japan had just that much influence, and we should be thinking about it that way, even if it's a combination of like sometimes just left out because of a Western centric kind of point of view, sometimes just due to general cultural misunderstanding. I think we just need a coherent narrative that sort of says, like, a ton of this originally came from Japan. Even if it came in like a slightly less familiar way than like Chef X trained under Chef Y and learned XYZ. And you know, some chefs are very clear about that. A restaurant that's just opened in LA called Dialogue, the chef, Dave Barron, you know, basically says he's trying to do something like that with Kaiseki. Like that comes from Kaiseki. He wants that kind of narrative. So I think the chefs, especially at that super high end, know that that's what they're doing, but the diners don't always. Thank you so much for listening to the Eater Upsell. If you liked this episode, please do us a favor and rate it and subscribe it and do other things that people do when they like things, which is like give it to their friends and talk about it and stuff. The Eater Upsell is hosted by Amanda Clute, our editor in chief, and me, Daniel Janine. Our studio team is Pedro Alvira, Miles Ewell, Paige Bethman, Alex Allreich, and Carrie Clements. Our executive producer is Maureen Giannone Fitzgerald. And that's all.